Hello, and welcome to the Health Leaders Revenue Cycle podcast. I'm Alexandra Pecci, Revenue Cycle Editor for Health Leaders. This month, as we wind down this tumultuous year and enter the holiday season, we have a bonus episode for you. Back in October, Change Healthcare sponsored a webinar featuring Kimberly Scatia, Vice President of Revenue Cycle for Mercy Health in Wisconsin and Illinois. The presentation was so fantastic and so popular with attendees, I wanted to share it with our podcast audience too. So this episode contains two parts. The first is Kimberly's presentation, where she talks about all the elements of her organization's denials management program. The second part is an in-depth question and answer session where Kimberly answers some of the questions she received from the webinar audience. So without further ado, here is Kimberly Skasha and her fantastic presentation, Cutting Through Industry Noise in Denials Management. Enjoy. Let's talk about what we're really, really trying to focus in on. What is a denial? Um, and again, this is, this is what I believe. Um, I believe that there's a major difference between first pass rejections and true denials. So when I say that, what I mean is that most people and most systems will look at their 835 remittance data and they automatically create baselines and they call them denials. When really the data that's coming in from the payer is what I refer to as a first pass rejection. These are claims that need rework. Um, they're claims that our organizations could have gotten paid uh, correctly the first time if something else hadn't happened or maybe if we had taken an additional step. So claims that didn't pay upon first submission require user intervention to receive payments. Things like sending a copy of an invoice, uh, sending an itemized statement. Um, those, are, those are easy things that typically will come in and say well, this is quote denied, whereas I look at that as rejection causing rework. True denials, as we report them out to executive teams, are those claims that have been completed. We have done all of the work in revenue cycle that we can by the follow-up team, the denials team, case management, whoever it is that we have working those accounts, and we were unable to successfully obtain reimbursement for our services. These are the dollars that we have to closely manage. These are the dollars that we have to uh, report up to our executive teams and our clinical teams. Um, many people talk about denials management, but really what we're talking about is how do we work denials and how do we stop first pass rejections? Those are, those are the two things that we're really talking about when we think about denials management. You know, the first step in managing any major process is reporting on them. Every major EHR vendor out there has class classifications or groupings of uh, the information that comes back in on the 835. These categories that we talk about now in the industry, everyone knows what they mean. You know, we have authorizations, we have coordination of benefits, rejections for credentialing, and those types of things. And almost every major EHR out there automatically nowadays classifies the information into those groups. You know, the problem is that with, again, most systems that are in the market, while we can classify those adjustment codes, those remark codes from the 835s, 
and I might offend some of you on the phone, the, the problem is, is that most of those vendors, the software vendors that are out there, they think they know how to work these rejections better than we do in healthcare. And sometimes they might have better insights, but let's be honest, we are the ones that are in it day in and day out. We understand the inner workings of what's going on in our organization. The vendors are going to give you work lists. They're going to route information. They're going to tell you who needs to work it. And I can't even begin to tell you how tired I am of a vendor telling me that I need to route rejections to, for example, a patient access work list and have them work it because the only way to fix the problem is to have them fix the ones that they created. Now, let's be really honest. If I am a pre-certification or an authorization representative, my number one focus is to fill up the doctor's schedule because the doctor's fussing at me. He's got, in, he's got um, empty holes in their, in their schedules. We need to get patients in and get seen. We need to reduce our wait times and that type of thing. You know, working or reworking a denial or a rejection because we had an authorization uh, error come in is not my primary focus. So denials management, first pass rejection management, it's generally considered a revenue cycle process problem, but the issue is, is that we have to go back and use process redesign and management to work through what is causing these, these things to happen. But once we understand this amount of rework and we understand the write-offs, then we need to move into the step of having the right people work the accounts that have been rejected in order to overturn them. In my opinion, it's not the front-end staff, it's a true denials management or your follow-up team, depending on what kind of uh, rejection is received. Um, these resolutions and teams are the ones that are going to fix the problems, um, and we're going to talk a little bit about how do we do that in our next step. This can be massive reports. Um, it can even be dashboards. I've seen a lot of Excel dashboards that, you know, they're nice, but they typically don't function well because most, most healthcare systems, even larger physician practices, the data is just too much for Excel to handle. And like I said before, I've, I've been around a long time. We used to create the databases before we had some of these visual analytic tools, um, and they were, they were decent. Um, but we really have to think through the fact that we need some kind of analytics tool, some sort of Power BI. Uh, there's many of them out there, ClickView, Tableau, software like that that comes into play. But as we think through that, once we've identified some of those um, uh, errors that are coming back, we really have to almost live and die, and die by how many, how much. Um, you know, this helps us to focus efforts on reduction and elimination. For any of us that have been in revenue cycle for any amount of time, we know that if you go and ask a frontline uh, follow-up person about a problem, that individual is going to be focused on their problem. What is it that they see every day? What is it that slows them down day in and day out or that they have to touch all the time? They're not focused on the organization's problems or a payer's problem, but more so what impacts me as a user. So as we think about all of our reporting, we identify how many, how much. Is it happening 80% of the time? Is it happening 20% of the time? 
it's really critical that we, um, when users identify those issues, we ask ourselves, where is the value? Um, I can't tell you how often the, the payer requirements change. We all know this, right? So what happens? Payer requirements change, the 835 remittance changes, and then it looks like what I call a fake rejection or a fake denial. So we have to be careful that as we identify potential um, you know, rejections or first pass rework that we also look at and say, well, did something change from a payer requirement that we got to go back and, and change our whole system because now it's being categorized incorrectly. So those are separate root cause issues, right? They're separate identifications of problems. But focusing on that how many, how much rule will give you some really good guidance on where do you put your, your personnel, your time, and your effort. Um, I always relate this back to, as I spent time in consulting, um, we would go in and look at uh, accounts receivable aging scenarios. And it's, it's hard for people to understand that, generally speaking, you could take almost any organization's receivable and map it out and identify that 80% of the total dollars that are owed to an organization are in 20% of the volume. So if I can focus my staff on that 20% volume, I can fix 80% of the problem. And it's, it's no different in root cause identification and denial management. We have to focus on where are we going to get the biggest bang for our buck. So how do we do that? Um, well, in order to do that, we have to really, truly utilize process redesign. And when we utilize process redesign, um, we think about business process modeling notation. Um, this is a little different than um, what you're probably used to. Um, BPMN is uh, taking steps to identify inefficiencies. Um, it's modeling the activity representing the processes. Um, when we think about redesigning processes, we have to look at everything from the point that the patient initially contacted the organization. So that could be at scheduling. Um, it could be at the point that the provider put in an order for a particular test. Um, and we have to look at every single part of that process in order to understand where are the gaps. What happened that um, that bill, that claim, didn't get paid right the first time. Um, there are so many things that can be built in the background of an electronic health record, it's easy to misdiagnose a problem or, even worse, create a workaround. So this is where BPMN comes into play. <clears throat> it's not the blame game. This is not about, you know, saying that your authorization representative didn't do their job. Um, this is not about saying that, you know, the doctor didn't document correctly. What this is about is figuring out how do we utilize these massive technology advancements that we have at our disposal to ensure that we are actually making a difference. Um, you know, the easiest example I can give is I recently had a situation related to vaccinations. You know, we're in flu season. And um, there was a question that came up about the difference between a nurse giving a vaccination and a doctor providing counseling for the vaccination and, you know, providing the nurse giving that um, vaccine. And there's different ways to code that. 
And the initial uh, knee-jerk reaction by the entire team was, well, you know, you know, the doctor's just going to have to know, and they're going to have to, you know, put this this in differently, and and then the coder's going to have to manually touch it. And I was like, no, 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 no. Um, as we started to really talk through what the system capabilities were, it was literally what they called a smart phrase. Um, you know, we were able to identify that by putting in an additional smart phrase, and teaching our physicians about how that documentation impacts not only the code but the bill, um, we could ensure that the right information was flowing uh, to the claim as necessary. This is um, business process redesign. It is a flowchart method that models out the steps of the process from end to end, and it visually depicts the detailed sequence of business activities um, and information that flows to complete the process. <clears throat> So for those of you who don't know, and I apologize if this is fall on your screen, of course this is a very simplistic uh, example, but BPMN truly is flowcharting. So again, when we think about denials management and root cause mitigation, what we want to do is we want to um, visualize what's a process. Um, when we do this, and I, I've, again, I've seen this a lot in my career, when we create flowcharts, <laughs> um, we have to keep it simple. Not every single process and every single um, you know potential piece of data needs to be on a flowchart. It needs to be logical, clear sequence, um, and you need to have a consistent flow of direction, meaning all of your yeses flow one way, all of your noes flow another way. Um, a lot of people, especially in healthcare, don't use flowcharts, and we backslide into this like bullet point list or word documents about you know how a process is. But if you relate this back to analytics um, and where we are now in utilizing some of those major analytical tools, there have been major studies that have shown that humans learn visually. It's, it's the same reason um, that we're using you know, line graphs to show trends over time because I can very quickly identify a gap or a problem in a picture than I can in massive spreadsheets that are thousands of rows and lines. Um, many of you may be thinking, oh my gosh, you know, uh, flow charting is so difficult, now I'm gonna have to train somebody and I have to learn how to do this. It's really not. Um, BPMN has been around for over 50 years. Uh, companies in all different industries across the world use it. Um, you know, everything from healthcare to stocks and bond management, all kinds of locations use this. But it can be it can be used to help you visualize your process, document the process, identify the gaps, which I I really like to call opportunities, and discuss everything in a common format. Um, I know it sounds crazy, but nurses and revenue cycle people talk two different languages. But if you put it in a picture, um, in a visualization, uh, that conversation becomes much easier. So now that you know how to visualize a process, right, you, you have tracked your potential rework, um, you've gone out and you've looked at a process, you've observed things that are going on, um, and now we need to understand how do we really identify those opportunities, right? Um, I used to have a boss that uh, he would tell me that, and this was in my healthcare consulting career, he would tell me that his goal was to have every employee that worked for him be able to look at any process and find 
at least two gaps or opportunities to make it more efficient. And he would tell me, I don't care if it's in health, in, in a hospital, um, you know, mapping out the entire process for supply chain, or literally walking into a Burger King and watching how they, you know, take orders or flip burgers. Um, if you understand how to look at um, process redesign, you can do it anywhere. So what we want to do is we want to um, identify every touch in the process, uh, and we want to look for workarounds. Remember, we have, in healthcare, we have spent billions of dollars on software and technology that's supposed to help make our jobs easier. And unfortunately, somewhere in the last 10 years, some organizations have done those implementations, and it's like they forgot that they were the experts. Um, they, they thought that the technology was going to take every problem out and just said, okay, you know, this is going to fix my problem. Um, and what we find is that as we start to go look at, okay, well, why did we have this coordination of benefit denial? And we walk back through the entire process and find out that, you know, an alert that was coming up, um, you know, registration knows that they just click through it and they ignore it because they don't think it's valuable. Um, it's, it's little things like that that um, you have to literally go and look for. So when you look for opportunities, you're going to analyze each step. Ask yourself, what could go wrong? Um, does the system allow us to bypass things? Um, do we, are we allowed to check a patient in um, without checking to see if there was an authorization needed or obtained? Um, and, then, and then think about what's the consequence of the failure? Uh, what happens if we miss a charge when the doctor is putting the documentation through? You know, what does that do to our reimbursement? Um, and then really try to consider why does the failure happen? Um, I ask why all the time. Uh, sometimes I think, uh, I think my poor IT staff gets tired of me asking why. Um, so I've tried to ask why not now. But <laughs> um, why does the failure happen? Is it the system is allowing it? Um, is it our training? Is it our people? What is it that's allowing this um, failure to happen? And then, obviously, what are the controls in place to present the failure? And maybe you don't have any. Um, what controls are missing? Uh, where do we need to put controls in place so that we can actually um, make a difference in those first-pass rejections? Um, when you're going through uh, opportunity identification or root cause mitigation, you've got to think of it like an audit. Um, if you've been in revenue cycle for any amount of time, you've been through plenty of audits, and, and what do they do? They come in and they review a process and, and they identify your missing controls. They say, well, you didn't do X, Y, or Z, and you got to fix it. But um, unlike an audit, which is almost kind of a blaming situation, um, when we do it for denials management and first-pass rejection mitigation, we want to do it so that it's not blaming or shaming. Um, this is always about... Um, how can we make it better? Once you have identified and analyzed these steps, what do you do next? Well, it doesn't do any good if you've analyzed everything, you take no action. Um, and this is, uh, some people do this well. Um, we can generate corrective actions, um, putting in controls, make a process change, a technology modification. Um, generally, these things take time, but they're necessary to ensure um, we're successful. But the big one um, is assigning responsibility. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've gone into meetings and we talk through issues, we identify um, opportunities and, and gaps that we need to address, and um, 
we know what needs to be done, but there's no clear who. Um, and so make sure that you've got that, that who is responsible to follow up on um, putting those controls in place or taking action. Um, and of course, setting uh, completion dates. Um, one of the other areas that we tend to fall down in uh, healthcare is reassessing. Um, when you put a change in place that you've identified related to first pass rejections, it is critically important um, that you immediately start the reassessment project. Because the worst thing that could happen is for you to put a change in and then six months down the line find out that the problem's even worse. So whatever you did to identify the problem to begin with, you have to continually reassess it to ensure that your controls um, made a difference. Where we are in Mercy Health, uh, we are in the infancy stages of redesigning our denials management process, but this is gonna be our new mindset. We have to create a zero tolerance mindset, and that doesn't mean we're gonna go and start, you know, like I said, blaming and shaming people, but what we have to understand is that uh, first pass rejections and true denial write-offs are totally controllable within the organization. Um, whether that be up front, uh, whether that be in the business office, or whether that even be in managed care and contract renegotiation, all of these uh, things that we're battling are completely within our control. So when we think about this, we want to ask ourselves, is it a preventable denial? It, can I stop uh, what is occurring and reduce my rework? And what controls are necessary to prevent this in the future? Obviously, training and technology, monetary repercussions. And when I say monetary repercussions, I, I will get to that shortly when I talk about the managed care partnership that has to be created. But as you think through your strategy for how you're going to tackle denials management, it's very important that you create a philosophy of what are you willing to um, willing to write off? And uh, for me, that's zero. Uh, I, I don't. I want to get to the point where I, I do not have denial write offs. This one's pretty important because I, again, I think there are places where uh, we fall down as um, healthcare systems. Um, you know, we we do a good job generally. Um, for those of you who have already established. Uh, denials management or rejection tracking. We can track and we can trend all day long. Um, we can create some process redesigns. It's an ongoing, continuous process, absolutely. Um, but what we don't typically do, and I think this is critically important as you create an, a new or redesigned denials management strategy, is partner with our managed care team. <clears throat> so one of the things that um, I think is, is, is probably paramount to denials management is creating a managed care scorecard. Um, this is actually a way to, for lack of a better word, rate your payers. Um, which payers um, do you really feel are partners? And so what you have to do is you have to create um, basically accuracy of payments. Uh, think of it kind of like... Um, your uh, clean claim rate, right? We monitor how clean are our claims getting out the door, how many edits are they um, hitting every day. Think of it that way. We want to understand um, if I send 100 claims to United, 
um, how often are they paid correctly. So, and you should have multiple things that you track. How often are they paid correctly? How often are they paid on time? Um, how often are they asking for documentation that is not required per the contract? So creating a managed care scorecard is, is really, really important. And, you know, I said earlier, Revenue Cycle, we're an overhead department. We are, unfortunately. So this is where this really gets difficult is really having the time to take everything you tracked and trended earlier, so your first pass rejections, your write-offs, um, then as you've done your reassessments and monitoring how good you've changed your processes, now you've got to monitor how well the payer is doing to pay and how often do they give um, denials. Uh, I have learned, especially here at Mercy, because uh, we have some very uh, large payer organizations that we deal with, that um, the payers are great at this. They, um, they have scorecards, right? They, they track our quality metrics. They track how our claims come in. Um, you, can, you can literally get on the phone with probably any one of your major payers and ask them for a um, denial snapshot of what they have denied against your claims and you will get it pretty quickly. So we have to do better in healthcare to have a scorecard that clearly shows us where we need to focus. Having that scorecard allows us to also sit down and work with managed care on what do we need to change in our contracts. Um, you know, again, at Mercy, I've had a tremendous amount of exposure into the contracting and um, the language that the payers throw at us, and um, that's a really fun job, let me tell you. Um, but what happens is, is Sometimes these contracts are so voluminous that it, it, we lose sight of what's really important to us. Very simple things like having a clean definition of what a clean claim is and you know, having a definition of what medical necessity means and pushing back on the payers because a lot of times um, you get the medical necessity definitions that basically say medical necessity is whatever they say. Um, that's just not going to work. So ensuring that we're tracking their payment rates, um, their first pass rejection rates. Um, uh, the other thing I really uh, feel strongly that we have to make sure that we're tracking is um, like the, the appeal overturn rates. Um, I have also found that in a lot of the contracts, I'm learning that some of the major payers have snuck in clauses like you're only allowed a, a, a single appeal. Um, that's really difficult if if you're having your regular follow-up team work, work those first pass rejections, chances are that initial appeal is probably not going to be as extensive as you'd like it to be. Um, so again, it's just taking the time to sit down with managed care. Um, again, there's a lot of things you can research out there about how to create a managed care scorecard, but it's very important to monitor uh, those rates and push back into the contracts those things that you have difficulty with. Hi, it's Alexandra Pecci from Health Leaders. Now Kimberly is going to field some questions from our audience. Here's the first question. It's from a listener who says, I think the idea of flowchart and flow maps are very helpful. Not all upper managers are open to it. How can a progressive frontline worker influence a company's closed-minded or passive culture when it comes to an evidence-based and progressive practice? That's a great question. Um, I, and I, I have to say because 
um, again, I'm at a very, very large organization, so I have some very progressive um, executives, and I have some that are, um, let's say, conservative. <laughs> and so um, I actually have experiences firsthand um, in the last seven months. And what we did um, in order to sort of push the envelope is um, we created the process flows um, and did it the old way, right? So we showed them, you know, the bullet points that they wanted and everything else, but then we also showed the process flow. And it was amazing to me um, how it was almost like you could see the light bulbs go on over their head, kind of in a cartoon. And they, and they were so impressed and so thankful for the visualization and even had many of them that were like, wow, this is so much easier to understand. So now, having said that, don't take your most complicated process and try to do that with it because you will overwhelm people. So find a simple process that's currently either being questioned or needs to be redesigned. Um, do it the way the organization likes you to do it right now, but then create the process flow. Um, you know, go ahead and, and create that flow. You can do it technically in Microsoft Word. I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend it, um, but if you don't have uh, the Visio tools, um, you can technically create one in Microsoft Word. It's a little, you know, more cumbersome, but you can show that visually and you'll be amazed, I think, at, at the, uh, the results. Thank you. So our next question also has a comment with it. Thanks, Kimberly, for being so open and transparent on this subject. Could you also use this process on your discharge but not final build list? Although, or are these technically denials? Actually, no, I, I, because this was all denials management, yes, I, I talked a lot about denials, but yes, I strongly recommend you use the same process on your discharge, not final build, because um, especially in certain systems, certain EHR systems, it's difficult to identify where um, a breakdown occurs. Um, and so again, as we think about getting claims out clean and fast, um, your DNB is definitely an area that this entire process could be helpful. All right, next question. How do you handle the payers that have unrealistic requests prior to paying the claim? I.e., BC, BS Nationwide has imposed unrealistic requirements and delayed payment due to medical record requests and review. It's a really great question. Um, we're battling this with a couple of our major payers, too. So um, this is one that is really going to be dependent upon your organization. Um, I specifically came to Mercy Health because my CEO is a, um, a major man of action. And so if we identify major problems, again, using the 80-20 rule, how many, how much, if I identify for him that I have a payer that is giving me a major problem, he has no problem um, picking up the phone, renegotiating contracts, and for those of you who watch the news at all, even canceling contracts. We have canceled five major contracts in the last seven months. Um, so it is going to be dependent upon your organization. Um, you're definitely going to have to have some major backing at the executive levels when you're battling those kinds of big problems. Our next question actually kind of piggybacks on that. Have you ever terminated a payover, payer over excessive denials? And if so, how did it go? Um, actually, yes. <laughs> um, that was, that's the one this year. Um, so we had a 
Um, it was a major managed Medicaid organization. Um, and for any of you who are familiar with Illinois Medicaid, you know how much of a challenge it is. Um, but we, we actually terminated um, our contract and are still out of network with that payer um, because of the denials um, that we were receiving as well as um, their, uh, for lack of better words, my mind's drawn a blank, their slowness to pay. Um, we were, it was taking us on average about 126 days to get claims paid. Um, and they were literally uh, about, I think they were about 55 million in charges per year. So yes, I have um, been there, lived through it, and um, and still living it actually. When you build a denials management team, who should be on the team? That's a great question. I actually had hoped somebody was asking me this because I pulled up my original proposal that I did for our team here. Um, and what I see is you need um, you need a clinical denials and appeal specialist. So you need someone with a clinical background to work those medical necessity related items and to help identify um, where those problems might be in the process. Um, you need reimbursement analysts, and when I think of analysts, I think of people that can pull data, um, who understand contracts, um, who can really kind of marry the two together. Um, you need financial analysts, so folks who can understand bigger picture, um, contractual percentages, um, you know, really understanding impacts, like I said, if you were to cancel a major contract, what that's going to do to an organization. Um, and then you're going to need a, a coordinator. You're going to need somebody who can set the vision um, and, and really kind of see it through the whole process and ensure that the reporting out to your executive teams is appropriate and accurate. All right, next question. Thanks for outlining the value of BPMN. Been in the business for over 10 years, always worked for both Fortune and smaller companies, get paid faster and fuller, but managed care is a different battle. Needs tremendous influencing with that group. How to effectively influence them is my question. So I'm guessing that this question is how do we get managed care on board? <laughs> um, so I'm going to run with that. Um, where I've been extraordinarily blessed is managed care reports to revenue cycle. So, um, you know, they're on board. Um, but one of the things that uh, has happened in my career is managed care was a big mystery box, right? Um, nobody could see the contracts. Um, nobody had insight into what was going on and that type of thing. Um, so if it's that situation that you're against and they, they do not report to the same um, executive, um, you know, you, you're going to have to uh, kill them with data, right, show them what's happening, um, and hope that they're going to be responsive to coming on board and working with you. Where I've been really lucky is, um, like I said, they everyone reports to me, so I have control over the situation. Um, for me, it's more about um, getting my highest executives on board with what do we need to do in the managed care area? Um, and for the first time in, honestly, in my 20-year career, um, managed care is becoming a much more open area. Um, you know, we're, we're not hiding our contracts from the denials management team. We're not hiding our contracts from the supervisors in the follow-up area. I mean, they need to know what the contract states. We've even gone a step further and 
as we're in negotiations with our managed care payers, um, we've brought in our quality teams um, and our physician compensation teams so that we can show them, here's the analysis that we're doing, here's what the contract states, um, you know, give us some feedback so that we can make sure that we're not negatively impacting your expectations. Thank you. Next, do these statistics that you shared take into consideration DRG, clinical, or other validation type audits from payers? Um, not, not the audits. So if you're asking, um, you know, when we talk about first pass rejections or major audits that come through, these statistics don't, um, uh, don't capture those. And mostly that's because, generally speaking, when we get a DRG audit, it's on paper. You know, it doesn't come in through an electronic medium that gives us an easy way to be able to track and trend that information. So, no, for me, that's a, that's a separate uh, group, so to speak. Um, we have um, some clinical auditor educators um, that assist us with any of those DRG audits that come through. Next, I would like to know if you have any suggestions for an organization that is IHS that does not have a utilization management committee, writes off like crazy, simply believes to let the providers perform procedures, and then try to fight the denial afterwards? <laughs> um, no utilization management and, um, you know, let, uh, allows providers to do anything and writes off. Well, unfortunately, I'm probably not going to like this, and hopefully I don't get too many laughs on the phone, but um, go somewhere else. <laughs> um, you have to have utilization management. It's, it is critical, um, and you cannot allow providers to just do whatever. Um, again, uh, it's, that's just dangerous. Uh, you're just basically asking to lose money. Uh, there's no way to fix that unless you have control over creating it. Now, again, I'm a big data girl, so um, if it were me in that situation, I would be getting my hands on as much data and as much write-off information as I could, getting it all the way down to the location and the provider level, um, and getting it up to the executives. I will tell you one massive lesson that I learned coming here to Mercy is that um, sometimes um, people will know the problems and they bring it to their supervisors and it doesn't go anywhere. So. If you bring something to your supervisor and time goes by and nothing has happened, I would strongly encourage you to take it a level higher. Um, you know, Mercy Health has had some challenges in the past and we are operating in all transparency and all of our teams know that if they don't feel like an issue is being addressed, you escalate it. Thank you. All right, next question. We've had remits gone wild, duped on top of dupes, combining spreadsheet help with two different billing portals based on dates of service, what's the best way to control dupe remits for the same patient? That's a great question. So this is where um, analytics and, and really having good analysts um, or good software can assist you. So the applications that we use um, actually have what's called a dedupe process. So all of the, and, and this is one of my complaints with the, again, the big box vendors in electronic healthcare is they're going to count it multiple times. 
Well, we actually have a process that runs in the background on all of our analytics that says, look at this um, remit and look at the entire database um, that you ha already have and is it a duplicate? And if it is, it removes that information. So it's a little complicated. Um, it's definitely not something that um, you know I, I could do, um, but I would strongly encourage you to uh, seek out folks that can help you with that. Um, I, I do know people in the industry that can do it, so uh, you can feel free to look me up on LinkedIn and I can give you some connections. Great. Going back to the question regarding the denials team, how do you see coding or a coding specialist as part of the team? Yeah, so when I talk about um, like our analysts, uh, so the people who are actually going to be doing the work, um, one of those team members would be someone who has background in coding. If I can get a coder on that team, it'd be great. Um, but even if I have someone who has, uh, like I have physician coders and hospital coders, so I have the inpatient, outpatient coder certifications. Um, so even if I can get someone who's working in that direction, maybe going for coding certification, it is important. But I will tell you that the team that I'm creating at this moment um, is when I talked earlier about who works denials and be very clear about what the denials management team works versus not. Coding is not one that denials management team works. They'll track it. They'll trend it. Um, they can help do root cause mitigation and, and identification of problems, but they're not physically working those denials. Those denials or first-pass rejections are routed to my coding team. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks again to our webinar sponsor, Change Healthcare, and our fantastic presenter, Kimberly Scacia. And thank you to you in our audience. I hope you enjoyed that bonus episode of the Health Leaders Revenue Cycle podcast. This year has been so hard on everyone, and our thoughts and gratitude are with every single person working in the healthcare field. We thank you so much for being part of the Health Leaders family. Until next time, keep taking care of patients and each other. We'll see you in 2021.